Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. Now, many companies go out of their way to surprise and delight their customers. There were some air quotes there. Assuming that this is what leads to good word of mouth and repeat business. But maybe they've got that all backwards. Do people really want to be surprised all the time? Or do they want to know what they can expect and have a seamless experience where everything works the way they assumed it would? Setting your customers' expectations needs to be done with intent and with careful consideration of your company's strategy. And if this sounds hard, well, yes, it is. And that's because it takes a lot of work. But help is on the way. Business experts Tom Stewart and Patricia O'Connell have come out with a new book devoted to service design that offers some terrific guidance on that front. And of course, I'm not just saying that because folks from Continuum happen to be quoted in that volume. The book is called Woo, Wow, and Win, Service Design, Strategy, and the Art of Customer Delight. Tom and Patricia came by recently to share more of their thoughts around service design with Toby Bottorf, Vice President of Service and Experience Design here at Continuum. Let's switch over to them to hear more. Welcome to Continuum, everybody. We are here today with Tom Stewart and Patricia O'Connell, the authors of the new book, Woo, Wow, and Win, Service Design, Strategy, and the Art of Customer Delight. Patricia, I think this book comes at an incredibly opportune time. Service design, design thinking in general, are starting to um, come to a level of awareness in the public mind and in the business intelligence. For you, why this book now? Well, this book now, uh, now in part just because, wow, a book takes a whole lot longer to write than you think. When people say, yeah, it's kind of like being pregnant with an elephant. It takes a lot longer than nine months. But, um, but in terms of where the idea came from, it was really with the understanding that, you know, we're seeing so many more jobs go into the service sector. Services overall account for 80% of the economy, that it just seemed that there weren't enough guidelines and in place to help people understand how to do their jobs. And there also wasn't the kind of thinking at the high level in the strategic realm. And it seemed that the book was an opportunity to kind of shine a light on this and bring these two things together. Yeah, that was sort of what I felt too, that that the more we learned about service design, the more excited we became about it. And, and also the more we realized that there needed to be a connection between all those post-it notes on the wall of the team room and the PowerPoints on the wall or on the desks at the boardroom, that the connection between that, that service design was what connected strategy to customers. And, and that line had not been drawn at the strategic level as clearly as it was. So it was, it felt like an idea whose time Whose time? You know, it was not a brand new idea, but it was coming into the sun in an important way, and it was time to bring it there, so that CEOs and chairmen and so on and so forth would say, "Yeah, right, we should be doing this." And I, th I think uh, designers are also saying, "Yeah, this is what we've been doing," because uh, designers are very good at working without a map or working off the map. We invent methods where methods don't exist. Um, service design was a thing that people were doing before it got a name. Graphic design was a thing that people were doing before it got a name. And people with business intelligence want to understand how to systematize this stuff. You write about the 100-year gap between business intelligence around designing products and services lacking a lot in that um, 
kind of codified intelligence. And, you know, without going down a rabbit hole or, or far afield, that 100-year gap shows up in almost every management discipline. I mean, almost everything we know about how to manage a complex organization comes out of manufacturing. And, and, and much of what we think about is about managing automobile assembly plants, the most complicated workplaces of the 20th century. Well, the most complicated workplaces of the 21st century are big city tertiary care hospitals where service happens. And the great management ideas of our century are going to come from that. And, and, and I'm convinced that it's going to come from the, the, the application of design ideas to that kind of circumstance, that that's where the next great breakthroughs in, in running organizations are going to come from. And the reason also it matters so much is because services are different than products. For a service to happen, you have to be there. You can't outsource your meal. You can't outsource your stay in a hotel. You can't outsource uh, your haircut. These are all things you have to... I mean, these are all very simplistic examples of services, but they're all things that involve the, the active participation of the purchaser, the buyer, the consumer, the client, the customer, whatever you want to call the person on the other end of that transaction. And that's another real difference. We have to take that human being into account. In your book, you refer to service design and delivery. I think that's crucial um, that, you, that you bring up delivery um, because services are created and consumed in the same moment. Delivery is the proof of good design. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what drove you to include delivery in the scope of what you were talking about? What made you realize that without delivery, we weren't really completely talking about design? Well, part of it was to really get the attention of the C-suite and the strategic people. They are very focused on execution and proof points and what is it really you know, it shows up in the bottom line and it doesn't show up in the bottom line unless something actually happens. So that was part of getting it out of the, the conference room, get it out of the boardroom and get it into the place where the transaction actually occurs. And also, I'm not going to say that designing something is easy, but you really don't know if it works until you do it. And you can only do it with that customer on the other side of it. So on one hand, it makes testing both simpler and always ongoing. That goes back to the point that that you were making that that services happen with the customer in the mix right then and there. Not in the lab, uh, but in the real world. And so when you think about service design and service delivery, I don't know where you draw the line. Uh, I mean, and, and so I think it was important for us to put them in the same phrase precisely so that people wouldn't think there is a line. Service delivery is service design and vice versa. To us, service design and delivery, in a sense, is design doing. Right. Otherwise known as design. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well put. Um, one of the threads that runs through your book uh, is a point of view about customers. You write at some points that um, the customer is always right is nonsense, that you shouldn't believe that. Uh, but you do write that assume a customer is right for you until proven otherwise. You write about uh, setting expectations for customers. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a quote from the great Del Close, the man who invented improv at Second City in Chicago. He said, treat your audience like poets and geniuses, and they'll have the chance to become them. You know, one of the things that I think about this, and we, we thought a lot about this, and I'm pleased with what we, what we came up with as we were working through Woo, Wow, and Win, which is that too many times 
things about customers uh, are written only from the point of view of the customer and are not written from the point of view of the company which wants to have a good experience too. I mean, was it good for you too? Did, was it profitable? Was it effective? Are these the right customers? You know, the old phrase, the customer is always right. You can Google around on it to try to figure out its history. And its history basically goes back to the emergence of department stores. And sometimes it's, credit, it's, it's attributed to Marshall Field. Sometimes it's attributed to Selfridges. Sometimes it's attributed to somebody in Paris. But it was basically training for shop staff to say, don't be rude to people. But it's not about strategy. Strategy is about figuring out which customers you can serve profitably and better than anybody else. And so picking your customers and setting your expectations for them is the first part. Serving them and, and, and trying to fulfill their desires has got to be based on assuming that that's a customer you want to serve in the first place. We consider the first principle of service design and delivery, the customer is always right, provided it's the right customer for you. When you have figured out the customers that you can serve reliably, repeatedly, profitably, and scalably, that is the right customer for you. And those are the customers you should work really hard to please. I think customer companies should take, should try to quantify the amount of time and money they spent, or they spent chasing or trying to please customers they shouldn't have, and take that time and money and repurpose it to finding and serving the customers they should have. And I think that would pay for a whole lot of the growth. One of the things that um, I'm very happy to hear you talking about in the book, when you talk about um, figuring out who your right customer is, um, one of the things that undermines that intent is the old cliche, <coughs> surprise and delight. And if you are trying to set expectations for a specific customer and presumably set expectations for a different customer that is actually not your customer, the expectations being uh, please find a, an alternative. Progressive does that really well. Um, if you are setting expectations, you can't afford to be surprising. First of all, why should good service be a surprise? <laughs> Secondly, delight is actually, in our definition, a pretty broad term. If I get my cup of coffee fast and it's hot, that's pretty delightful. It doesn't always have to be this over-the-top five-star experience, but it's about meeting my expectations as a customer, the expectations that have given me a right to say, this is what I expect from you, and this is what I have a right to expect from you. You meet those, you delight people. Surprising people confuses them, and they don't know then how to set their expectations, and then you as a company don't know how you can meet those expectations if you're constantly resetting the bar. I think surprise and delight is one of those cliches. I mean, the phrase sounds nice, so people say surprise and delight, surprise and delight, surprise and delight. Well, double-click on it. What does that mean? You know? I mean, what you really want is delight, and, and, and yeah, sure, if there's an extra glow, if there's something special that happens above and beyond, fine. But people who chase surprise, I mean, surprise is, 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 is the frost, is, is the maraschino cherry on the frosting rose. Get the cake right. And so, if you can throw in some of that other stuff, fine. But don't put it on top of a 
lousy piece of cake. Tom, I think that a lot of companies believe that surprise and delight as one thing is uh, about using big data to be just in the moment perfectly predictive. That may be a false promise of big data. Personally, I think um, people don't like being predicted, not even by their spouses or loved ones, uh, let alone by a robot. Um, is there's a big difference between walking into a bar and having a drink placed in front of you and the bartender graciously saying, your usual, Tom. That's so, the difference between being predictive and, and providing good service. We had a great conversation with some people at a major hotel chain about that very question, about how much scripting do you provide to frontline employees? And the fact is that everybody who goes through those revolving doors is a little bit different. And sure, you want to have policies, you want to have procedures, you want to make that experience seamless, smooth, and with the right sort of brand and feel for the hotel that's involved. But you want to give guidelines, but you don't want to give scripts. I mean, at one point we were talking, Toby, to you, and you were the one who said... People make very bad robots, yeah. and robots don't make very good people, and people have to understand the difference. What we've seen at Continuum is that one of the jobs that people have, there's that great book by Wendell Berry, What Are People For? People are for feelings, and emotion is a really important part of service design, getting the emotional side of it right. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. We worked on uh, Audi On Demand, which was a, a from-the-ground-up project um, with Audi AG, helping them develop a new mobility service. We realized when we were thinking about what this should look and feel like that the, one of the big differences between a product and a service is that the car lives in your driveway. The service lives in your memory. Uh -huh. And we remember through an emotional filter. What are your thoughts about... Um, how emotion, especially for a boardroom, how should they think about the design of emotion in services? Well, it's a, it's a great point and a great, and a great question. Um, services are experiences. Experiences are recollected intellectually, but also profoundly emotionally. And how was that trip? How was that flight? How was your vacation? How was your dinner? It's very, I mean, these things are emotional. How was that consulting engagement? You know, they're make, they're, these things can become very emotional. We're talking about emotion in service design. And I want to connect that to one of the ideas in your book, which is critical customer interactions. As a designer, when we work on a customer journey, some of the things that we identify as the critical interactions are critical because they are emotionally fraught. Um, people remember the last thing that happened, the best thing that happened, and the worst thing that happened. And if you can raise the floor on the worst thing and make the best thing impart a halo to the whole thing, um, that means that you're improving other parts of the service that are basically transactional. Is emotion the right lens for looking at how you prioritize critical customer interactions? I think it's got to be one of the top three lenses. Um, I think emotion is, is highly important. I think repeatability, scalability. You know, can we do this reliably? Can we do it repeatedly? Can we do it at scale? That's got to be another way you look at it. And I think the other way you look at it is in terms of what really expresses our value proposition, who we are. What kind of a company are we? What are we trying to say about our customer, about who we are? It's, I mean, just as it's important that you have to take your customer into account and the right customer, also be true to yourself as a company. And, you know, I think there's a challenge here, which is that sometimes something that is very routine to a service provider 
is very special to the customer. And an example of that might be somebody walking into a branch office of a bank and taking out a loan for a, t- for a small business. And, oh, yeah, that's fill out these forms, do this, that, and the other. But for that small business, that might be my opportunity to do something, to take this business off the $2 million level and get it to the $4 million level. It might be a huge piece of, of, of what may matter to me as a customer more than it matters to you as a service provider. And boy, empathy has got to put you to understand that or you're going to screw it up. I still remember the person who helped me with my first mortgage. I knew nothing about the mortgage process. I I was very naive. I, I didn't understand it at all. And I sort of wandered in half on a whim one day and got to talking to someone who took me through the whole process. And I still remember how great he was and how invested he was in me having a great experience because to him he was not just processing a mortgage he was helping a single woman buy her first home I and think- that that meant so much to me you know it was something that i had never kind of envisioned oh okay i'm going to be a homeowner especially in new york city you really don't you know think about being able to buy your own apartment and and that that was such a great example to me. I, I guess if I were to think back as to an early example of an amazing service experience, and he probably didn't do anything extraordinary, but he thought about it from my perspective. He was empathetic, provided you know he he. It was a delightful experience, and he was there with me from beginning to end, um, from from the emotional part of it. And and I think that's really what you have to think about. What are you doing here? Are you selling a mortgage, or are you helping somebody buy their home? Are you helping somebody achieve a lifelong dream? Stories like that are the reason why we go out and talk to customers before we start designing, because there is almost always more going on uh, in somebody's life than the service provider um, can account for. Understanding the context that, that this stuff has to fit into, whether it's just my life is overcrowded or it's a very personal hierarchy of value. This matters to me, that doesn't matter to me. I think uh, when we were working on the book, Toby, you told us a great story about you were working with a company that does uh, home security systems. Yeah. And you know, you could do everything from program it to tell your radio, to tell your refrigerator, to check your email. And people were just like, no, we really want it pretty simple. We want basically to find out if someone's breaking into our house or not. You know, we wanted to call the cops if the alarm goes off. Yeah. We learned on that project that um, luxury is just life simplification. It's not a whole bunch of extra features. Yeah. But you said you only found that out by actually going and talking to the customers. And what do you want? Patricia, when you talk about critical customer interactions, so you said it's not just um, the most emotionally resonant ones, but also which ones are true to us. I think it's really interesting to think about um, service and experiences as being on-brand or off-brand. When we, when we did work with Audi on Audi On Demand, um, there were some elements of the service where we realized that the best thing we could do for the customer was the least to try to make it special was just going to gum it up and be counter to the brand, which is about elegance and simplicity. We found ourselves trying to remove steps in the customer's journey because that was more on brand. And, and it, you know, rather than try to make it special, it was special if there was less to it. Well, it's interesting because we have something that we call the 10 E's of 
um, service design and delivery, and two of them are efficiency and elegance. And we like to think of them as being both internal facing and external facing. What you do behind the scenes, behind the curtain, off stage that the customer doesn't see you do but sees the effects of versus what the customer is actually doing. And in our mind, actually, efficiency and elegance are two things you should strive for. Don't leave anything out, but don't add stuff extraneously. Don't add stuff that doesn't need to be there. There was one line in your book that made me uh, raise a fist in solidarity. Uh, you write... Only one, Toby? Come on! Well, this was the, the lighter held high one. When service is properly designed, employees are not bucking the system when they do the right thing. Amen. But I have to ask, why is that so rare in practice? Because there's too much of a disconnect between one people who are making the decisions about what's going to be invested in there's not always enough of a connection also to the people who are designing the services and then the people who are interacting with the customers are probably your best source of data they're the ones who hear what's working what's not working what what do customers like what do they wish you had what do they wish you had more of what was really great about this service what was what was irritating what was problematic what really brought a smile to their face and i think there has to be in this ecos in your own internal ecosystem there has to be communication and this kind of virtuous circle among the people who are investing the money making the strategy setting the design, and then back to our point about delivering on your design. Tom, is it as simple as businesses um, wrongly allocating cost centers and value centers? I think that I was, I was going to go right there and I'm going to add a, a little bit of something else to it. It's first of all because it's a lot easier to measure cost than it is to measure value. And so too often people say, what does it cost to do this, that, and the other, rather than what is it worth to do that or the other. It's harder to do. and and. You know, a second thing is that often companies get so tied up in their internal measurements. What are we doing in this department, that department, that's this department, as you move across the customer journey, that they're not thinking about what's going across the whole. Let me give you an example that's an industrial example, and it's not really about customer service, but it's a good example of the kind of thing that happens here. When Paul O'Neill was the CEO of Alcoa back years and years ago, he decided that he was going to have a goal of 100% safety, zero accidents. And the way you go after that is you measure near misses to find, and when you look at near misses, you find that near misses almost always happen because people are taking shortcuts. And they're taking shortcuts because there appears to be a kludgy process. It, it's too hard to do the right thing. And so if it's too hard to do the right thing, people will do the wrong thing and they'll lose a finger or an arm. The same thing happens in service. If it's too hard to do the right thing, people will do the wrong thing. So if you set it up making it difficult for me to serve a customer honestly or efficiently because of all the reporting I'm going to have to do, I'm going to take a shortcut in the customer's Or people end up doing the robot thing. One of the concerns I have about the service economy, which is growing, is the nature of the jobs that are being created. Um, Oftentimes they are crap jobs. Uh, People are not given judgment. People are not able to grow in these roles. Um, One of the things that makes me optimistic, though, about this sector is uh, what you write about in your book, the virtuous circle between service design and service culture in an organization. What gives you hope about the nature of jobs in the service economy? 
There are a few companies that we wrote about in the book. Uh, one of them, Boston-based company, we can give a shout out to Invaluable, um, another Boston-based company, which uh, facilitates online auctioneering for both the people running the auctions and bidders. And if you, as a bidder, hit the wrong button and end up placing the bid for $25,000 when you were really just going, oh God, I would love to own that thing and go, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You immediately can get in touch with someone at Invaluable. Whoever you get on the phone is empowered to solve your problem. You don't have to go through three people, okay? So you're not sitting there thinking, my God, my kid will never go to college now. I just bought something that I really (laughs) didn't want. But I think it's another great company that really works on empowering um, frontline employees is Warby Parker. And I think it's about recognizing the value that these people on the frontline can bring to you in terms of the information that they can give you, the insight into the customer in terms of giving the customer a good experience and helping to reward that value. And then it's also helping these people feel good about their jobs, which is then going to encourage them to do better. I don't know how to completely solve the pyramid problem of, you know, when you get to the top, the there are fewer, better yeah. jobs. But I do think there is a lot to be said for recognizing the value that people at the lower levels of the pyramid can bring to both your customers and to the company? You know, I think this is a, I think it's a great question about the future of jobs. I, 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 I fundamentally believe that everything that can, that everything that can be done the same way twice can and will be automated. Um, and that may lead to a whole lot of jobs disappearing. But at the same time, I'm seeing a trend. I hope it's a trend and not just a little blip. Um, just in those call center customer service interactions of companies saying, wait a minute, let's not just manage it for cost. You see it in those ads for the Discover card. We promise that we will connect you with a person and that person is not going to try to upsell you. Um, you know, I just had and wrote about a little bit on LinkedIn a, a hellish experience with uh, a large mobile telecommunications company with Verizon, you can read it on LinkedIn, uh, in which basically this was an outsourced, miserable call center kind of experience, the kind of thing where you would want them to turn to robots because the other was so terrible. But if people are saying, wait a minute, this is actually an opportunity to establish a customer relationship to manage my emotions. I had the flip side experience with L.L. Bean trying to return a shirt. I ended up buying three more because the person on the phone was so wonderful. So I think that there's an opportunity and maybe a bit of a trend for companies to say, wait a minute, this tail end, this call center lowest common denominator of service jobs may actually be not the tail end, but the point of the spear of creating great customer experience. I'm with you. And my hope is that um, as companies start to understand that what we're designing is not just services and experiences, but relationships, their model of the customer and the value of the customer will take a longer view and it will allow them to invest in frontline employees, qualities of service, and the overall service ecosystem in better ways for customers and companies. Thank you, Tom and Patricia, for um, a very engaging conversation. Um, We are looking forward to continuing conversations with you. Thanks, Toby. Thank you, Toby. We are too. The Resonance Test podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. 
Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and technology to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Los Angeles, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about that term, innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Our sincere thanks to Tom and Patricia and to Toby for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Multiple thanks to Ken Gordon for producing this podcast so flawlessly. And to all of our listeners, we thank you for your ears.